Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 11. These last two weeks, we've been looking at the Trinity. Uh, We've been staring at the triune nature of our God, and we've seen so many amazing realities. The first week, we talked about God being triune, and because God is triune, he is love, and because God is triune, he is gracious, and because God is triune, he delights in unity through diversity. And then we looked last week at the reality that if God were not triune, if he was a single solitary uh, person, then salvation itself would be impossible. And adoption itself would be impossible. And last week I had a number of amazing conversations with many of you over that reality of adoption. And I had several of you say, I just did not know that the love that Jesus has for me is so deep, is so intense, is so intentional, practical, purposeful, specified, that he loves you. You're at his table, right? You're not relegated to the kid's table. You are with Jesus, adopted as heirs of the Father, just like Christ. So this morning, as we finish this Trinity series, uh, I figure a, a three-part sermon series on the Trinity is appropriate, right? Three persons of the Trinity, three parts in this sermon series. I wanted to dive deeper into the reality of the love that Christ has for us because of the Trinity, because of the triune nature of our God. Russian theologian Vladimir Lotsky put it this way, if we reject the Trinity as the sole ground of all reality and all thought, then we are committed to a road that leads nowhere. We end in despair, in folly, in the disintegration of our being and in spiritual death itself. Between the Trinity and hell, there lies no other choice. You don't have to fully understand the Trinity to be saved, but if you understand the Trinity and you reject and deny the triune nature of God, then you're rejecting and denying that salvation is possible and that adoption is possible. So this morning, I want to dive deeply into the Trinity, into the triune nature of God, but specifically into the love that the triune nature of God gives to us. I don't know if you've ever had a friend that you know very well. Maybe it's your best friend. You know everything there is to know about this friend. And then all of a sudden, one day, They tell you something that you never would have guessed was their favorite food or their favorite activity. You just, it doesn't compute. That doesn't make sense. For me, I have a friend that I met at a summer camp. He's a Marine. He was the, one of the biggest, burliest, manly men I've ever met. And he would tell me, you know, there were things that I saw overseas that I can't even describe to you. Like he'd start crying as he was thinking about the things that had happened to him. This guy was a war machine. He also really enjoyed cooking, which is totally fine. And he had these, for lack of a better word, adorable oven mitts. And I just thought, those are really cute, and they don't really match you as a Marine. And uh, where'd you get those? Who gave those to you? Just kind of jokingly, did you know? Did your wife give those to you as a little gag gig, uh, gift? Or like, what are those? And he says, no, I made these. He knits. (laughs) And he knits adorable oven mitts. And I just thought, that doesn't make sense to me. I would never have thought that about you. 
that you enjoy that. What about with Jesus? What about with Jesus? Are there things about Christ that we would be able to say, I I just never would have thought that that was what you enjoyed? Or let me ask it this way. What is at the very center, at the heart of who Christ is? What is his heartbeat, if you will? What, if, if I can use this phrase, what uh, gets him out of bed in the morning, right? What, what energizes him? What is his heartbeat? What is he all about? If I were to ask you that, what is Jesus all about? What is it that he loves more than anything? What energizes him? I think a few of us would probably say judgment, um, looking at wicked people, and saying, how dare you in judging them? Maybe more of us would say justice, that he loves justice. He loves right winning and wrong losing. Maybe some of us would say glorifying the Father, that Jesus' heartbeat is to glorify the Father, and you have biblical evidence for that. What would you say? What is the heart of Christ? Charles Spurgeon pointed out, that in all of the four Gospels, 89 chapters of biblical text, there is only one place in 89 chapters where Jesus tells us explicitly about his own heart. He says, this is who I am in the innermost part of my being. This is what energizes me. This is what gets me out of bed in the morning. This is everything I'm about. What is it? It's Matthew 11. Verses 25 through 30, let's read together, and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So... Because that's true, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, this morning, as we, we always do every Sunday, we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from the Word, to do what it is that you love to do, Holy Spirit. You love to show us Christ. But Father, what we're asking this morning is something That is absolutely impossible apart from you sending your spirit and allowing him to work in such a way in our hearts that we would have not just a paradigm shift, but a shattering of a paradigm that we've had about Jesus for far too long. Father, I pray that we would walk out these doors changed. I don't don't want us to leave 
and say, well, that was great, and move on. I, I want us to be undone. I believe you, through the gospel, would want us to be undone. And so what we ask is only possible through the supernatural work of the Spirit as the word is opened and as our hearts are opened. So God, open our hearts, break us, change us. God, help us to feel in a deeper way than ever before the love that you have for us. May we be honest about our own feelings about you and what we think that you feel towards us. God, may we know the love of Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. This morning, I want us to look at three life-transforming realities. Three life-transforming realities. This is at the end of our Trinity series. This is just a way to wrap up what the Trinity does and the implications of the Trinity in our lives. These are three. If we understood these realities and we meditated on these every day, our lives would be radically different. So uh, reality number one. I want us to see, number one, Christ's heart for you. I want, I want you to see this morning Jesus' heart for you. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 11. And we're going to move all over the place again like we've done the last couple of, of Sundays. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden. So weary, that's... Uh, You've toiled to the place of exhaustion. You're completely exhausted. So you're wearied in your efforts and in your uh, work. You're heavy laden. There's a heavy burden upon you. And Jesus says, I will give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me because, and here's where he explicitly gives us his heartbeat for us. He says, nowhere else in all of the Gospels, who he is in his very essence, at his very heart. Here and only here does he say, this is my heart. And it's two things. I am gentle and humble. If you have the ESV, it's lowly in heart. I'm gentle and I am humble. So you can come to me, you can take my yoke because I'm gentle and I'm humble. Gentle. It's used only three other times in the New Testament. It's used in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5 to speak of the meek. Blessed are the meek. It's used in Matthew chapter 21, verse 5 to speak of being a humble person, and it's used in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, to speak of being gentle, being kind and gentle with others. So it's meek, it's humble, it's gentle. A way to define this word is just masterfully done by a man named Dane Ortland. And Dane Ortland actually wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly, which the majority of what is coming in this sermon is from that book. And the majority of that book actually comes from an old Puritan book by Thomas Goodwin called The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth, which I would encourage everyone to read both of those books. Dane Orland says this, Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. That's what it means to be gentle. Not easily exasperated, not harsh, not reactionary, but just open arms, gentle and lowly. Or my Bible says, NASB says, humble. I am gentle and I am humble in heart. Humble in NASB, lowly in ESV. 
Dean Orland says, the point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. All of his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, for all of that, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. There's no prerequisites, no hoops to jump through. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required. His rest is a gift, no transaction necessary. Whether you are actively working hard to crowbar your life into smoothness or passively finding yourself weighed down by something outside of your control, Jesus Christ's desire that you find rest, that you come in out of the storm, outstrips even your own desire. He's lowly, he's tender, he's open, he's welcoming, he's accommodating, he's understanding, he's willing. If we're asked to say one thing about who Jesus is, Dean Orland says, we would be honoring Jesus' own teaching if we were to answer, he is gentle and lowly. What about you? If you were to say one thing, just answer one thing about who Jesus is, boil him all the way down to one thing and honor him in your response, what would our response normally be? Holy, other, majestic, magnificent, set apart. I think that we would be honoring to Jesus, as Ortland says, if we were to answer, no, he's gentle and lowly. Lowly gentleness is not one way Jesus occasionally acts towards others. Gentleness is who he is. It's his heart. He cannot ungentle himself towards his own any more than you or I can change our eye color. It's just who we are, and it's who Christ is. He says, I'm gentle, and I'm humble or lowly in heart. Now, this isn't just his feelings. The heart isn't just your emotions. Biblically, the heart is the control center of everything that you do. Everything that you do flows out of your heart. That's why the proverb says, guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. So heart is the seat of all of your affections. It's moving you. It's controlling you. And Jesus is very life proves his heart. He says, my heart is gentle and lowly. And remember how many times he had compassion on those that were sick, those that were needy. He says, come to me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yoke is easy. That doesn't mean that you will have a life free from pain or hardship. The word easy is used in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. That word kind is the same word used as the yoke being easy, easy, kind. It's a kind yoke. A yoke that's laid on the back and the necks of oxen would be very heavy. And Jesus says, the yoke that I have to give to you, it's not a yoke of an easy life, but it's a kind yoke. It's a yoke that doesn't wear you down. It builds you up. It brings you up. What helium does to a balloon, Dane Ortland writes, Jesus' yoke does to his followers. We are buoyed along in life by endless gentleness and supremely accessible lowliness. He doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. He lives in our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. It's his very heart. It's what gets him out of bed in the morning. This is who Christ is, and so many people reject him. So many people reject him, and there's a great illustration that Ortland uses about rejecting Christ. It's like a drowning man in the water, completely unable to swim, and drowning, 
and somebody standing on a boat throwing out a life preserver to them, a life vest, saying, put this on and you'll live. And the drowning man saying, I can't put anything on. I'm drowning. I'm going down as it is. I can't put another burden on my shoulders. If I put a burden on my shoulders, that's going to sink me even faster. Jesus is that life preserver that if you put it on, you have to put him on. But if you do that, he'll buoy you up. He'll save you. And yet so many people say, no, that's too big of a burden. I can't put Jesus around me. What do you view, how do you view Christ? Thomas Goodwin, in that amazing book uh, that you can get, it's a little Puritan paperback, The Heart of Christ in Heaven for Sinners on Earth. He says this, men are apt to have contrary conceits of Christ. Because he tells them his disposition there by preventing such hard thoughts of him to allure them unto him the more. We are apt to think that Jesus, being so holy, is therefore of a severe and sour disposition against sinners and not able to bear them. No, he says, I am meek and gentleness is my nature and my temper. One of the reasons why I think this is so hard for us to understand is because we don't live this out in our own lives. We look at very wealthy people and we think that they look down on poor people. Some of them do. Look at beautiful people and we think that they look down on people that are less beautiful. Look at people that are very gifted in something and they look down on others. Athletes that are amazing look down on people that can't throw a ball and save their life. We just think that this is the way that God operates. He's so holy He's so magnificent. He's completely set apart from us. Therefore, he necessarily looks down on us. He must just look at us and think, you terrible people. And through the gospel, we know that God draws near to us. We know that intellectually. But we envision him coming near to us and our depravity and our sinfulness and our filth. We envision him coming near to us just kind of holding his nose, right? It's like, uh, I mean, I have to do this because I died for you to save you, but, uh, I don't, you know, you're disgusting. Can I ask you a question? Do you have an increasing suspicion that God's patience with you is wearing thin? Do you have an increasing suspicion that God's patience with you is wearing thin? Do you feel that though you know God loves you, you are just deeply disappointing him every day. You feel that. What Goodwin is saying and what Dane Ortland is saying and what Christ is saying, they're just commenting on his passage here, is that that is not how our God operates. He loves you. He longs to embrace you. Goodwin says that this unspeakably holy God does not cringe at reaching out to us filthy, dirty sinners. Such an embrace is precisely what he loves to do. He cannot bear to hold himself back in his love for us. The Christian life, I believe, is letting the scriptures deconstruct our own thinking on the way that God views us. Christian life is understanding how God views us. And yet, we so often struggle to believe it. We struggle to believe it. Matthew 11 is like the Psalm 23 of the New Testament. We have a good shepherd who loves us and tends to us and cares to us. But you might say, that's great, but you don't know how sinful I am. 
You don't know the things I've done. And plus, what about justice? What about judgment? What about wickedness being punished? Well, God does punish sin. He must. He will. He does. So can I ask the question, what is he on the edge of his seat eager to do? What leaps out of him most readily? Is it his desire to punish or is it his desire to do good, to swallow you up in joy? Turn to Lamentations, Lamentations chapter 3. In Lamentations, this is written by Jeremiah, and it's written by Jeremiah after the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was destroyed for their wickedness. They were a sinful people, just as we saw with Habakkuk, right? Their contemporaries, Habakkuk and Jeremiah. Jerusalem has been destroyed. They've been judged. God has done the judging through Babylon. But notice what Lamentations 3.33 says. Start in verse 31. The Lord will not reject forever. If he causes grief, which he does, he is the one who caused the judgment which causes grief, then he will also have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. Because, verse 33 is key, he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men willingly. He does not willingly. So your Bibles might have a little footnote next to that word willingly or a number next to it, which will take you down to a footnote or a, a note in your Bible somewhere. It's literally from the heart. He does not afflict from the heart. He afflicts in judgment. He brings justice and judgment and punishment. But it's not his major goal, his major aim. He doesn't afflict from his heart. He has to do it because he's holy. And he does it because he preserves his glory in that way. But he doesn't love to do that. Jonathan Edwards commenting on this passage and also Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 23 that says, Do I have any pleasure in the de death of the wicked, declares the Lord, rather that he should turn from his ways and live, right? This is God saying, I don't take death, uh, take pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's not what I enjoy doing. So commenting on Lamentations 3 and Ezekiel 18, Edwards speaks of God having a natural work and a strange work. I love these words that he uses. God has a natural work and a strange work. He says it this way, quote, God has no pleasure in the destruction or calamity of persons or people. He had rather that they should turn and continue in peace. He is well pleased if they forsake their evil ways, that they may not have occasion to execute his wrath upon them. He is a God that delights in mercy, and judgment is his strange work. So he has a normal work that he loves, giving mercy and love and kindness, and he has a strange work, his judgment. Now, Please know that God is not a, a sum of all of the attributes that he has, right? This is the doctrine of the simplicity of God. God is not 10% wrath and 20% mercy. That's not the way God operates. The doctrine of simplicity says that God is all of who he is intrinsically. So he just is wrathful. He is justice. He is mercy. He is love. He is goodness. It's not like pieces of a pie making a whole pie, but rather every attribute perfectly in who God is. But left to our own natural intuitions about who God is, we would conclude that mercy towards sinners is his strange work and that justice and judgment is his natural disposition. I just love judging. The Bible says the exact opposite. Turn to Hosea. 
Hosea chapter 11. I want you to see the way that God speaks at his own people. Again, we've studied uh, Israel, we've studied Judah, we've studied the way that they were so despicable and wicked that God says that's it, judgment has to come in. But notice what he said earlier about Israel. Hosea chapter 11, verse 7. My people are bent on turning from me. That's, that's their natural work, right? Our natural disposition is just to turn away from God. Though they call, on, they, they call them to the one on high, none at all exalts him. They're bent on turning away from me. What would we think his response would be? Fine, if you want to leave me, then I'm leaving you. But what does God say? Verse 8, oh, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again because... If we ask, okay, God, why are you not going to destroy Ephraim? Why are you not going to execute judgment? Because I am God and not man. I am the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. If it's me writing this, I would say, because I am God, because I am the Holy One, of course I'm going to come in wrath, because you're not holy. But our God says the exact opposite. Because I am holy, and because I'm God, and my disposition is to give love and grace, then I am not going to execute judgment. I'm going to take my fierce anger, my strange work, and hold on to it. Now, please know, God does execute judgment. Wrath is coming. It abides on those who reject Christ. Even today, if you're here in this room or you're watching on the live stream and you have not accepted Christ, but you've rejected him, maybe you believe he exists, but you have not surrendered every portion of your heart to him. You don't treasure him more than anything in this world. You say, I love him and I want other things. I want other sins. I want other competing affections. I just want to take Jesus and add him to my life, not crucify myself and let Christ live in me. If that is you, the Bible says very clearly that wrath abides on you. Judgment abides on you. But it has not been executed yet. There is still time. If you're breathing, if you're listening, if you're hearing the words that are coming out of my mouth, there is still time to turn because God is a God of mercy. And he's waiting for you to repent. He's waiting for us to repent. Please know that you and I will either be enveloped into love and the love of Christ, or we will be enveloped into the wrath of God. Those are the only two options. No one will receive Jesus neutrally. To no one will Jesus be neutral. So we know that wrath abides on those who reject Christ. We know that those who receive Christ as their supreme treasure, as their only hope for salvation, we know that love envelops them. But we keep on sinning. What about that? What about our continual life of sin? Dane Ortland says, when we sin, we are encouraged to bring our mess to Jesus because we know exactly how he'll receive us. We know exactly how he'll receive us. Parents, can I just, can I tell you that should be your goal with your kids? 
your kids should know exactly how you will receive them. Your kids should know that if they come to you and they've done something sinful and wrong, but they own it, they confess it, and they tell you, they should know how they will be received, just as you know how you will be received by your Savior. Ortland continues, he doesn't handle us roughly, he doesn't scowl, he doesn't scold, he doesn't lash out like many of our parents did. And all of this restraint on his part is not because he has some deluded view of our sinfulness. He knows our sinfulness far more deeply than we do. Indeed, indeed, we are just aware of the tip of the iceberg of our own depravity, even in our most searching moments of self-knowledge. His restraint flows from his tender heart for his people. Therefore, believer, as deep as your sinfulness runs, God's gentleness towards you runs ever deeper. This is Hebrews chapter 4. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus is our great high priest. We sang about this earlier. Therefore, this is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. So he's a high priest who's gone back to heaven. He's passed through the heavens. He's Jesus, the son of God. So we might think, well, we're here on earth. He's passed through the heavens. He's so far above us and beyond us that he doesn't care about us anymore. Or he just sees, he's aloof. He sees us from far off and he doesn't love us anymore the way that he loved us when he was here on earth. That's the whole point of uh, Thomas Goodwin's title. This is the heart of Christ in heaven still for sinners that are there on earth. He, it hasn't changed. If anything, it's gotten even more radical and intense. That's why the author of Hebrews says, let us hold fast our confession because we don't have, verse 15, a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize, but he's been tempted in every way that we have, yet without sin. That's same thing said twice, once in the negative, once in the positive. He's not unable, and he is able. And there's a, a triple negative here in this verse. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us because he was tempted but without sin. Therefore, he sympathizes with us. Sympathy, it's a Greek word, two words put together, the word with and the word suffer. He suffers with us. He has compassion for us. He was tempted in every single way that we are, every category, not every specific temptation, but every category, every kind of temptation, every area of temptation that we're tempted, he was tempted with. And he never gave up. He never succumbed to any temptation. C.S. Lewis says it this way. I love the way he describes Jesus pers persevering through every temptation and us just falling short. He says, quote, No man knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people just don't know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in to it. You find out the strength of the wind by, by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've been living a life sheltered by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Jesus, 
because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. He experienced temptation to a degree degree no other human has. He was tempted by the devil himself with strange temptations like turning uh, stones into bread. Therefore, he has a capability of unparalleled sympathy with you and with me as sinful human beings. We live in a world where people like to say, you don't know me, you don't know what I'm going through. There's a victim mentality in our country and in our culture. You don't know what I've gone through. And because of saying that, then you can distance yourself from anybody speaking in your life. You don't know what I've been through, so therefore you don't have any right to speak into my life. If you say, no one knows me, no one knows what I'm going through, nobody knows what's happening right now, there's one person that always knows. Jesus knows. He knows exactly what you are going through because he's been through it himself. There's a beautiful musical principle to illustrate this. It's called sympathetic resonance. Sympathetic resonance, it's the way that a tuning fork works. You, You hit a tuning fork and it makes a sound. And you can tune an instrument based off of that because as that vibrates, you can hear the vibration of that sound. So if I had an an extra guitar up here and I struck a note on my guitar, Luke's guitar would ring. It would ring out that note, even though no one's playing it. Just kind of like a ghost ringing that note out. A sympathetic resonance. When one instrument is plucked in a specific way, another instrument resonates with that exact same sound. That's what Jesus is for you and for me. He resonates with you when your heart is struck with suffering or doubt or struggle or some form of temptation, his heart is struck as well. He knows exactly what your weakness is. He knows your frailties. He's walked this path before you. And he cares for you. Thomas Schreiner says, as a human being, Jesus knows the frailties and groanings that beset the human race. He's not a distant and aloof high priest, but is himself intimately acquainted with the human condition. Indeed, he experienced the full range of temptation. The delight of joys offered by sin were no stranger to Jesus. He was cognizant of and experienced the attractiveness of sin, realizing that it brought pleasure. He understands every temptation that we face because he faced something similar. Nevertheless, he never surrendered to sin's power He shared in our weakness and frailty, but he did not, not even once, give himself over to sin. He always obeyed the will of the Father. So Christ's instrument is just like ours in every way. His heart beats the same way that we do, and he resonates with us in our frailties. Thomas Goodwin says, Christ is moved primarily by two things your sorrows, and your sin. He's moved primarily by two things in your life. The sorrows that you go through move him to pity, and the sins that you struggle with move him to mercy and pity and gentleness. How do you view your own sin in light of how God is going to come to you? The beauty of the gospel is that God is no longer our judge, but our father. We talked about that last week. We've been adopted into the household of God. Therefore, he is no longer judge for believers in our sin, but father. And Thomas Goodwin says, I love the picture that he gives. He says, sin now is no longer something that God feels necessary to judge because he already judged it in Christ. 
Therefore, sin in the life of his children is seen by God as a father, as, as his child being sick. It's a sickness that his kids have. You don't look at your child who's sick with a fever or throwing up and say, get over it already, and I, I won't be with you until you do, right? We don't say that as parents. They could be throwing up. They could throw up all over us, right? And we just crying, holding them, hugging them, saying, it's okay, I'm here, you'll be fine, you'll make it through this. That's how God, our Heavenly Father, views us in our sin. It's a sickness that is so despicable and it's so gross, and he says, I'm not leaving you in the midst of it. I'm holding you. The anger of the judge has been changed. Sin is no longer your identity, therefore sin is just a sickness. And God pities you like a, a sick child is pitied by their parent. Martin Luther says, I will only trust in God when I know that he loves me and wants to be kind to me. That's why the author of Hebrews says, because we know this about Jesus in verse 15, therefore let us, verse 16, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Draw near to a throne. A throne is for royalty. A throne is for a king. And God says, you can be here with me. You're welcomed. When you don't know anything and you feel like you don't have anything, Jesus says, you have me. You have me. You will not find apathy or indifference or rejection from Jesus. You won't find him standing aloof and far off. You will find him with open arms like the prodigal son's father to embrace you, running down to chase you. Don't hide from him. Come to him. There's nothing that you've done that's ever surprised him. He knows it all. He knows that you need him. He knows that you're going to fail again, sin again. So come to him. As the author of Hebrews says, we can come boldly before his throne. And this is only because we know the heart of Christ. Knowing the heart of Christ makes prayer more enjoyable. Maybe your prayer life is not amazing because you don't know the heart of Christ. You don't want to run to somebody that you feel is just going to judge every motive that you have. You run to somebody who knows is going to embrace you the moment that you open that door. Knowing the heart of Christ makes prayer so much more enjoyable and makes the pain that we go through in this life so much more endurable. This is the heart of Christ for you and for me. This is the heart that Jesus has. This is, if you want to ask what energizes Jesus, it's a gentle and lowly heart towards sinful human beings. You say, well, I have a hard time really believing that. I have a hard time really receiving that. I have a hard time living out the implications of that. And join the club. That's the Christian life. That leads us to point number two. Not only do I want you to know the transforming reality of Christ's heart for you, but I also want you to know and to see, number two, the work of the Holy Spirit in applying Jesus' heart. I want you to see the Holy Spirit's work in your life to apply the heart of Christ to you specifically. I want you to see this. Romans chapter 5. Turn back to Romans chapter 5. You might say, as you're turning there, I really wish I delighted in God more. I wish that I knew his love for me more. I wish that I lived according to his amazing love and his heart for me, but I'm struggling. And some of you might be saying, we really haven't talked much about the Holy Spirit in this Trinity sermon series. Well, number one, that's because that's the desire of the Holy Spirit. He does not want to be the spotlight. He is in the background as a supporting character 
for exalting Christ and his work in the gospel and applying that work to our hearts. But because the Holy Spirit is God, and because without the Holy Spirit, we would not be able to appropriate Christ's love for us, we have to see the work that the Spirit does. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. We just start in verse 3. Not only this, we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance brings about proving character, proving character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And you remember, if we go all the way back to the first, I believe it was the first sermon that I preached when we were in quarantine over at the Graham's house, we went through this verse and we talked about how the love of God is a really sticky, uh, it, it can go two ways in the Greek. I think it's designed to be those two ways. It could either be the love that God has for us has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has enabled us to understand and receive the love that God has for us, but it can also be the other way. The love that we have for God has been given to us in our hearts. And I actually think both ways are appropriate, biblical. I think they're both here in this verse. The only way that we know that we can love God is because he first loved us. That's what 1 John says. We love him because he first loved us. So if you love him, then that's only possible because he has poured out his love in your heart. So if you're here this morning and you say, I really wish that I knew the love that Christ had for me. I really wish I could appropriate this in a better way in my own heart. If you feel that at all, sense that at all, cry out to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit can give that to you. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse, uh, verse 15. We'll start here. There's so much in this verse, uh, these verses. To this day, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over the heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, and there's so much here to talk about with Moses at Mount Sinai and all these different things, but just zone in on verse 18. With an unveiled face, behold, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So the only way that we can grow in our love for Jesus is to behold him rightly by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, showing us the Son. And by beholding, we grow and we are transformed into the image of Christ from a degree of glory to the next. I love how there's a degree, right? In my case, it's a point zero 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 one degree every 70 days that I slowly grow from one degree of glory to the next. I wish it was just you're saved and you're instantly like Jesus. But Paul says, no, that's not the way it is. And the only way that you will, will grow is by beholding Christ rightly. And the only way you can behold Christ rightly is by the Holy Spirit opening your eyes to see him. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is why the Holy Spirit is someone that we should be singing to. By the way, the Holy Spirit, just a side note, is a person. Holy Spirit's not an it, not a thing, not a force. Holy Spirit's a he. He's described as a he in the Gospel of John. You can sin against him, lie to him, right? In Acts chapter 5, you can lie to the Holy Spirit. You can do things that cause the Holy Spirit to feel. So he's a he. He's not an it. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. This is, beholding Christ, this is the secret of Christian happiness. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from ourselves to Jesus. 
Satan's work is just the opposite of this. Satan is constantly trying to make us look at ourselves instead of Christ. But friends, we will never find happiness by looking at our prayers or our activities or our feelings. It is what Jesus is and not what we are that gives rest to our souls. If you would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must, my friend, be by looking to Jesus. I love that quote. That really is the essence of communion. Communion is looking to Christ, not looking inward at ourselves. You could write down Ephesians 3.16. We're running out of time here. Ephesians 3.16 talks about the Spirit's enablement of us to receive the love of God, to understand the love of God. The Spirit does so many things. He regenerates us. He convicts us. He empowers us with gifts. He testifies in our hearts that we're God's children. He leads us. He makes us fruitful. He grants and nurtures us in resurrection life. He enables us to kill sin. He intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray. He guides us in truth, and he transforms us into the image of Christ. And now, because we are given that spirit, we are led, we're energized and empowered to love Christ and to feel the, the heart of Christ for us sinners. It's one thing to understand the love of God for you, and it's another thing to feel it, to truly sense it, to know it, right? It, it's one thing for a parent, right? This is, for, for me, with my kids, it's one thing for me to tell my kids I love them. I tell them every day I love them and I'm proud of them. It's one thing for me to say I love you. It's quite another thing for me to hug them and kiss them and they run in here every Sunday morning and I stop whatever I'm doing because I want them to know that my family is more important to me than any other priority in this world. So they come in here and I stop what I'm doing and I hug them. Usually I fall on the ground and I kiss them and I wrestle with them for a little bit. And then I say, okay, I got to get back to work, but I, I want you to know I love you. It's, it's one thing to, to say, I love you. It's another thing to demonstrate that in as many ways as possible. God the Father does the same with us. He doesn't just tell us, I love you. He demonstrates us and gives us that love through the Spirit. Thomas Goodwin says, so that you shall have my heart as surely and as speedily as if I were with you, and I will be continually breaking your hearts either with my love to you or your love to me or both, I tell you that when I'm in heaven, this is speaking from Christ's perspective, that there is a true conjunction between me and you, and as true a dearness of affection in me towards you as is between my Father and me, and that is as impossible to break this knot and to take off my heart from you as for my Father's for me. It's all in John 16 and 17 where Jesus says, the love that... God the Father has for the Son, and the love that the Son has for the Spirit, and the love that they have in the Trinity is the love that we are enveloped into. So Jesus says he is gentle and lowly in heart, and the Holy Spirit takes these words and interiorizes them into our lives. Or to say it the way Dane Rutland says, the Spirit turns a recipe into actual taste. The Spirit's role is to turn our postcard apprehension of Christ's great heart of longing affection for us into an experience of sitting at the beach in a lawn chair, drinking uh, a drink in hand, enjoying the actual experience. The Spirit does this decisively once for all at regeneration, but then he does it 10,000 times thereafter. As we continue to sin, folly, we have boredom in Christ, we drift from the felt experience of his heart, he continually pulls us back. This is the heart that Christ has for you, and this is the Spirit's work to help you understand that love. 
Finally, number three, and we'll end here. The third transforming reality that the Trinity brings to you and to me. Not only, number one, that Christ's heart for you is gentle and lowly. And not only, number two, that the Holy Spirit works in your life to enable you to understand that, to feel that, to know that, and to treasure that love. But finally, number three, the security that you and I have in the Trinity. I want you to see the security that you and I have in the Trinity. This is where I believe it would be appropriate for us to end our time together because this is what communion points to. This is a covenant that God has made with us that even when we fail, God will not fail that covenant. We are secure in Christ. Just two verses. Write them down. You know these verses. Galatians 2.20, right? I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but Jesus now what? Lives in me. Jesus lives in me. And in Colossians 3.3, that's the other verse. Write that one down. Colossians 3.3. Paul says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So Galatians 2.20, Colossians 3.3. I want to do something for you this morning. I rarely do here with object lessons to illustrate the point. I saw a dear brother, uh, David Platt, do this, and I'll never forget it. And I pray that you would never forget this either, to illustrate how secure you are in Christ Jesus, in the triune Godhead, okay? So, behind me, I have a Tupperware. This is going to be us. I have a marker. This is you and me. I don't know if you can see this. The lid is broken. We are a broken people. It's appropriate. Here's us, right? This is going to be terrible. This man is very tall like I am. There's us, okay? You and me. What did Galatians 2.20 say? Been crucified with Christ, so it's no longer us who lives, but what? Jesus now lives in us. This is going to be Jesus. There's Jesus. He lives in us. Now, the Bible also says, Colossians chapter 3, that we have died and our life is hidden in Christ again. So here's Jesus a second time. The Bible says he is in us and we are in him. Can you see us still? There you are. Jesus is in us, and we are in him. Now, I ran out of Tupperwares because the Holy Spirit's involved in this as well. He's actually sealing us for the day of redemption, so he's involved in every single step and process. But we've missed the last part of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 says that not only have we been, has Jesus not only been in us, but we are in him, but also the last part of Colossians 3, we've died and our life is hidden in Christ with whom? With God the Father. So we are hidden in God the Father. We've been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer us who lives, but Christ lives in us. And then, the life that we now live, we live as those who have died and are hidden in Christ. And Christ is hidden in God the Father. So, for you to be taken out of the hand of God, for you to lose your salvation, let's just, let's just think. Let's say the devil wants to take you away. He's got to go through the Father first, which I don't think that they're really on good terms. And I don't think that they're very equal in their power and authority. But let's just say somehow the devil gets past God the Father. If he gets past God the Father, who is he going to meet next? He's going to meet with Jesus. Last time they had a meeting on a hill called Calvary, and Jesus decisively won that victory by crushing the snake's head and rising three days after the snake had bruised the Savior's heel. So I don't think that Satan's going to win that one. But let's just say he does. Let's say somehow he gets to you. Who else does he have to face again? This is round two, right? Round two, Jesus in you, not to mention the Holy Spirit all around you. Brothers and sisters, you are secure in Christ. There is nothing that can take you out of the hand of God. Nothing. You're, you're pretty secure because the triune God is your God. Dane Ortland says it this way. For God to de-resurrect you, to undo his salvation work, for God to bring his rich mercy to an end, Jesus himself would have to be sucked down out of heaven and put back into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. You are that secure. You're that secure. So no matter what level of sorrow, suffering, disease, diagnosis, whatever your job status might be, whoever might be against you, no matter what happens, nothing can ultimately stand against you and nothing and no one can take you out of the hand of God. Because God is triune, he is love, he is gracious, he delights in unity through diversity. Because God is triune, salvation is possible and adoption is possible. And because God is triune, Jesus Christ has a love and a heart for you that is beyond anything you could possibly imagine. The Holy Spirit works to help you understand his love for you. And you are forever secure in the, in the hands of the triune God. That's why we gather together to remind ourselves of this. And that's why we partake of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is just a reminder to us of everything that we've studied these last three weeks. Who our God is, who we are, how God treats us, how he acts towards us, and how secure we are in him. The only way that the Lord's Supper could be undone, that the work of Christ could ever be undone in our lives, is if everything he did was undone. If his, his glorified body was sucked out of heaven and thrown into Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, and he was to be killed all over again, never to rise from the dead. We are that secure. But notice, our security does not come at all from who we are or what we can do. That's why when we come to communion, we're just staring at Jesus. These two elements are elements of Christ, his person, and his work. We're not staring at ourselves. We look inward to see our necessity for a Savior, but we don't look inward to see the, the ability that we have to save ourselves or the reason that Christ would save us at all. We look inward to see the sin that made salvation necessary his death and his resurrection necessary. 
and then we look upward, right? We sang it. Upward I look and I see in you who made an end to all my sin. We sang it earlier. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So let's open this first section. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, signifying what would happen to him. He said, this is my body broken for you. I have to be judged so that you would never be judged. I have to be crushed so that you can be a son or a daughter. I will die so that you can live. He said, do this. Uh, Paul tells us to do this as often as we do in remembrance of Christ and proclaiming his death and his resurrection until he comes again. He's coming again. And that's what we proclaim as we eat. Let's partake together remembering Christ. In the same way, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant, cup of redemption, his blood sealing our pardon. It is impossible to undo the work that he did. Brothers and sisters, you are secure in Jesus Christ. There is nothing that can take you away from him, not the devil, not demonic activity, not the world, not even your own flesh. If you are saved, you are secure in Christ because of the blood of Jesus. He took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood poured out for the sins of many. And Paul tells us that we should, as often as we do this, remember Christ proclaiming his death and his resurrection until he comes back. Let's proclaim that he died and he didn't stay dead. He's alive. He is at the Father's right hand. He is on a throne. And he is our great high priest that we go now boldly to to say thank you. Thank you for loving me. So let's remember him together and let's partake. Jesus, we do say thank you. We say thank you. There is absolutely nothing that we could possibly do to repay you. That would just be a slap in your face to say that we can do anything to make it up to you, to pay you back. And so with gratitude in our hearts, We remember you. For we plead, Holy Spirit, that you would work in our hearts to love Jesus more. And Father, we say thank you. I pray now as we meditate on the love of Christ, that we would truly spread his praise from shore to shore for who he is and for what he's done. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen.